we can all uh, relate to. We're going to preach on the topic of change of perspective tonight. Change how we see things. And we're going to look at the story of these spies. I'm going to give you a little bit of background before we get into Numbers 13, 26 and kind of uh, let you know where we come from so we can see where we're going here. But in the beginning of Numbers 13, the Lord speaks to Moses and he tells him that they're giving this, this land Canaan to the Israelites. And he, he gives Moses the job of selecting these men to go down as, as spies to scout out the land that God has given them. And they choose 12 spies, one to represent each of the tribes of Israel. And Moses gives him the order to get up and go and see this land and give a full report about what they find there. And he goes into detail there in verse 19 where it says, you know, let them know who dwells in the land. Are they good? Are they bad? Um, what kind of vegetation is in the land? Is there fruit? Is there things to live off of? Are there things to build with? And he gives them a full detail of everything he wants them to look for in this land. And when we get down to verse 26, these spies have came back to Moses and they're going to give a report. And that's where we want to start at, Numbers 13, 26, where it says, And they went and came to Moses and to Aaron and to all the congregation of the children of Israel unto the wilderness of Paran to Kadesh and brought back word unto them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him and said, We came into the land... Whither thou sentest, and surely it floweth with milk and honey, and this is the fruit of it. Nevertheless, the people be strong that dwell in the land, and the cities are walled and very great. And moreover, we saw the children of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in this land of the south, and the Hittites, and the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the mountains, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and by the coast of Jordan. And Caleb stilled the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and possess it, for we are well able to overcome it. But the men that went up with him said, We be not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. And they brought up an evil report of the land which they had searched unto the children of Israel, saying, The land through which we have gone to search it is a land that eateth up the inhabitants thereof. And all the people that we saw in it are men of great stature. And there we saw the giants, the sons of Anak, which come, out, come of the giants. And we were in our own sight as grasshoppers, and so we were in their sight." As we look here at these spies, the first thing you have to notice is that these spies all saw the same place. That's important to remember in this. And how good is God in all this? Because God is giving them this land. He's already promised them this land of Canaan. And he is telling them, go look at what I'm going to give you. He doesn't just say, hey, you're going to have to like it and, and deal with it. He says, go look. Go see what is there. And as Moses sends these men out and they come back for this report, they start out very positive, very optimistic. There's all this good stuff there. It's flowing with milk and honey, which is pretty much in the Bible the greatest compliment you can be given to a place. talks about the fruit and how, how wonderful this land is. And Caleb, he tells them, he says, God has promised it to us. Let's just go get it. Why do we doubt God? If God has promised that we're going to have it, then we should not stand back and even for a second doubt whether we can receive it. Yet the other spies that are there says, hold on a second now. It's not as great as you're making it out to be. To paraphrase, the people there, are they, they're mean, they're there, we can't stop them. It even says the land eats the people up. In other words, it's a tough place to live in. Now again, they're seeing the same things, two different visions of the same thing. We see the same thing in our daily lives. We can, we can all as a group go in and see the very same thing, have completely different reports on what we see by the way we choose to see it. 
You see, yeah, I may see that pew, and we may all agree that pew is red. However, one of us may say it's the most comfortable pew you ever sit in, another one may say it's the most painful thing you ever sit in all your life, and be sitting in the same pew. And that's what I want to talk about tonight a little bit, is how we see things. Because it, I, I've noticed with everyone, not only just Christians, but Christians really should control us better than what we do. And I say we because me included. But yet we oftentimes allow the devil to affect how we see things. And we all have a choice how we see things. The most horrible situation that comes upon us can be seen with the touch of grace if we choose to do so. But yet so many times we, we live in the negative. We live in the bad. We let the bad eat us up alive, and we doubt God and what God can, will, and promises to do. So I'm going to give you a few things tonight that we need to change the way we see, all of us. And, and I will say, um, for me personally, this is probably my greatest battle in life, is trying to see the positive. Um, I'll, give you, I'll give you an example. Um, my job at Logan High in the morning is I am to stand there at where people, where the kids are dropped off by their parents and make sure that no one gets hurt, pretty much. No one gets hit by a car and things like that, and I just stand there. Well, it's getting cold out, so I'm not real crazy about this job at this point, but it's still my job, so I stand out there and do it. other day, I'm standing there holding the door, and there's some people saying things they ought not say because they don't want me to hold the door because they're getting cold, and they won't move anywhere else. They want me to move. And I get more mad, more mad, more mad, more mad, more angry. And me, I want to hold the door longer just to be mean about it at this point. But then I realize all of a sudden, what grace am I showing? What, What mercy am I showing by doing that? So the next day, what do I do? I shut the door and I step on outside and I just stay out there. Now, I was still cold, but I was smart and wore toboggan and gloves and all this. And when I walked back in, those people that were absolutely aggravating me to death suddenly said, you know what, he stood outside for us. Now, I don't do it to bring glory to me, but I need to handle them with love if I'm going to ever lead them to God. I had a choice how I handled that situation. I could have been mean about it. I could have been bitter. I could have been hateful. Um, and I wanted to be hateful in the flesh. But the Spirit of God drew me away from it. It's all how we handle and see these perspectives. The first one, we need to change how we see. We need to change how we see ourselves. One of the biggest things that Christians struggle with is how we look at ourselves. And we, we go in two different directions here. And we'll go first to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 9. Chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 9. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 says, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And this is the verse that really, really gets you right between the eyes. And such were some of you. But ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. All things are lawful unto me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. That one verse there, verse 11, both brings you way down and way up in one verse. Because they're being very clear, the writer, is that we were no better than any other wicked person on earth. Yet oftentimes we get real puffed up in ourselves sometimes as Christians. We, we become what, what we like to use the word self-righteous. Because we think, well, we're saved, so we're, we're so much better than the world, and we're all these things. In reality, all we really are is washed in the blood of the Lamb. We are not in ourselves, and our flesh, any better than the most wicked person out there because we all stand condemned. And Paul, like I said, he's very, very blunt with Corinth there that these folks who are Christians, 
done the very same things that they're condemning people for doing. And it's not that we should stand and uphold sin, but we should also not get prideful and think that we um, are impossible of falling or that we forget where we came from before God reached down and saved us by His grace. The Bible goes as far as says, no one seeks God. God seeks us. You wouldn't have ever turned to God if God hadn't got a hold of you first. Same thing for me. But oftentimes we get so big on me that we take God out of the equation and we begin to worship ourselves. We say, no, I got saved because I done this and I done that and I'm a member of such and such church when really we should point everything back to God. John the Baptist said that he must decrease that Jesus could increase. It's the same thing. If you're going to lead anyone to Jesus Christ, you cannot brag on you. You've got to brag on God. Brag on Jesus. Brag on what He did. See, when we see ourselves, we should have humility to ourselves because we should remember what God brought us from. The fact that we are wretched sinners that God saved by His grace through the blood of His Son. Psalms 139.14 goes on to say, I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. You see, this is the other polar opposite side of things. you got people who think that they are so good that they get full of themselves. And on the upper side, you have people who need to be brought up because they've allowed themselves to be beaten down. Yes, we were wretched. Yes, we were sinful. Yes, we're still not perfect. But... The Bible says there, skipping back to 1 Corinthians for just a second, that we are sanctified, we are justified. And in Psalms it says we are fearfully and wonderfully made. We're the only creation made in the image of God. Dogs aren't, cats aren't, whatever else in this world, grasshoppers aren't. Um, Us, humans, are made in the very image of God. God thinks we are special or He would not have gave His only begotten Son to die for us, to have a relationship with us. There is no other creature that God desires a relationship with but mankind. And while it says that we are wonderfully made, God also gives us His Spirit to adopt us. So we should feel good in that. We should not allow the devil to make us think that while we were sinners saved by grace, that we are uh, uh, incapable or unable to do the things God has called us to do. Because God thinks we're awesome. God sees us as a prize. He sees us uh, as a a purchase worthy of being made. He's willing to give His very life for So when someone tries to beat you down and say, well, you're just this or you're just that, you're not smart enough, not bright enough, not anything else, remind them that who you are in God, who you are in Christ. Because that's truly who we need to see ourselves as as Christians. We need to realize that we are capable of anything so we can do all things through Christ which strengthens us. So we need to give God the glory. The second thing we need to change how we see, we need to change how we see each other. And I'm not just talking each other in the church. While that is crucial, we need to change how we see each other, period. Us and other people. You see, so oftentimes we we see people who are out and they see all the negative about someone else. They say, man, I can't believe he said that. I can't believe he's wearing that. I can't believe she's doing that. And negative, 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 negative. And we never look at the good things about each other. You see, we are each God's creation. And we need to see each other the way Christ sees us. We need to see the people that are lost in sin the way Christ sees them and not the way the world sees them. Proverbs 17, 17 says, A friend loveth at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. Folks, what that means is that a brother or sister in the church is there for us in adversity. 
Um, I think of all the things I've been through in my in my lifetimes that uh, with with the, the death of loved ones and such that the church has been there. Uh, they've loved on me. They've helped me. They've they've been there by my side through everything. Uh, when I was a, a young preacher trying to figure all this out, the church was there for me. They supported me, gave me a pulpit to preach behind. Uh, they gave me opportunity to teach Sunday school and to do these things, encouraged and uplifted me, prayed for me. All these things. This is the purpose of your local church. We are to be there for each other. Uh, we should not cause adversity for each other. We should lift it up in adversity. When someone loses a job, we should do everything in our power to help that person subside until they can get back up on their feet. Uh, we should, when someone is suffering through the loss of loan or even going through a uh, marital dispute or something, uh, the reason one reason so many divorces in churches today is because the church does not unite behind the people. We we shun them. We get back and say, "Whoa, that's not our place." Yes, it is. We're a family. We love each other. We support each other. We help each other. No matter how big that adversity may seem, we are to be there for each other because we should love each other. So I said, friend, love at all times, not just in good times, not just in the mountaintops, but in the valleys, you love each other. Uh, you love each other when they're unlovable. When I go and pay a visit to someone who hasn't been in church in a while, First thing I let them know is I love them. It doesn't change. In fact, you know, I'm not there to beat them down, to, to, to condemn them. I'm there to tell them I love them and I'm worried about them, concerned about them. I want them to be in God's house because we love each other. The reason we do church discipline is because we love each other. Uh, the Bible says if a father loves his child, he'll discipline him. And I'm not anyone's father in here. However, we are each other's keeper. Um, and it doesn't mean just a pastor. It means if you know, have a brother or sister in sin, you need to go to them and do what the Bible says you ought to do to help bring them back into a closeness and intimacy with Jesus Christ because we love each other. The greatest adversity we ever face is that battle we have with sin, the battle we have with our flesh. And if you're here tonight and think you don't battle with your flesh, you're deceiving yourself because we all battle with our flesh. If you're saved and born again, you're going to fight the devil. There is no way you can be saved for any amount of time and not have the devil try to thump on you with something or some way, and, and he does it almost every day, almost every day in some way. We are to be there for each other. 1 Peter 1.22 tells us, says, Seeing ye have purified your soul in obeying the truth, through the spirit and unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. And there's so much in that verse, but I want to look at that, that line where it says, through unfeigned love. When we look at the word unfeigned, it means never-ending. It means forever, for always, never-changing, never-decreasing. Which means our love for each other should never decrease, but only grow. And I can say, as if for my own personal Christian walk, the longer I'm in the faith, the more I love my brothers and sisters in the faith. The more I have a deeper appreciation for my brothers and sisters in Christ. And I think that's the way Jesus has called us to do As we grow closer to Him, we should grow closer to each other. You see, the reason we grow closer to each other, we are sharing the same spirit. And we love each other with that pure heart. That means we don't love each other because we want to get something from each other. That means even when we see a brother stumble and mess up, that means we, we don't knock him down, we pick him up. How many times, and I hope this ain't you, but I've heard Christians say it in the workplace and at the store and everywhere else. Churches don't say nothing in front of their pastor, so I'm generally the last person to know anything. But you may do this, and if you do, I hope you repent of it. But I've heard people say, you know what, I'm just going to tell it like it is. Well, sometimes that's not always good. Sometimes they need to be told with a little bit of love. Or a whole lot of love. 
Um, if you come to someone, you start blasting with every fault they have that is not going to be productive. They're not going to repent. They're not going to change. They're not going to grow. They're going to have hard feelings. They're going to get angry. They're going to go out that door, and they're never going to darken the door of this building again. But I see people do it. And it, again, it don't have to be your local church family. It can be your person you're working with. It can be your cousin, brother, sister, whatever. That doesn't mean we keep the truth from them. The truth should be given at all times, but the truth with a grain of love. Um, you see someone, maybe they... they I had a, met a lady one time who was tore up and she didn't want to attend church because one time her, it was her job to bring the bread to a communion. This church, wherever she went, they made their own communion bread. And she said, I'm never going back to church again because I forgot to bring the communion bread and everyone got mad at me and this and this and this and all this stuff. And I thought, my goodness, if you don't make a mistake, you've never served God. Because if you serve him for any amount of time, man, you're going to mess up. I think of conversations I've had over the years that I wish I'd said something different. Every time I've preached a sermon, I usually leave here and say, I wish I'd said this and I forgot and left that out. There is always mistakes you're going to make when you're serving God. But it's not our job to be to up over the mistake. But it's our job to lift each other up and love on each other. Encourage each other to keep marching, to keep going. We sung the song about Christian soldiers, and the reason a soldiers and an army is successful is because they support each other. You watch in war, when the front line begins to have a weakness, the second line marches forward and replaces the fallen soldier that they may continue marching forward and pressing on. The church should be the same way. As a person is, falls, becomes weak, or becomes injured, we should step up and replace that person the way the, the church can march on. It's a big role, and it's a hard thing to do sometimes, but it's the, what we've been called to do. The next thing we need to change how we see, we need to change how we see our purpose. You see, the, the biggest thing people don't know anymore, it seems like, it, is what is the purpose of a church? What is the main job of the church? Mark 16, 15 says, And he said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Plain as Jane, not complicated. You say, well, that's the pastor's job. No, that is the local church's job. That is the born-again believer's job in Jesus Christ is to go out and preach the gospel to every creature. I want you to ask yourself this question. How gospel-centered is your life? When you go to work, what are you doing to spread the gospel? When you go to dinner with, your, with people, what are you doing to spread the gospel? When visitors come to your house, what are you doing to spread the gospel? That doesn't mean you have to get a Bible out and start quoting Scripture to them. But it would be nice if you can remember some to throw out there and when the time needs to be because faith cometh by hearing the Word. But sometimes the greatest evangelist is taking place in a living room or a kitchen and not in a church house. The greatest evangelist can be at a hospital bed, at a nursing home. It can take place anywhere you imagine you could have a conversation with somebody. How are you using those opportunities to share Jesus' gospel? That gospel is the very thing that evangelizes and saves souls. That is the only thing. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the only thing that converts a sinner and it's the only thing that can save a person from the pits of hell is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And guess what? You have been empowered and trusted to spread it. Not just me, but every single person that's been saved and been born again. Psalms 96.3 says, Declare His glory among the heathen, His wonders among all people. Notice it doesn't say declare His glory among the good folks. It says among the heathen. That means anyone unsaved. That means we should declare His glory to just the unsaved uh, cousin, brother, sister, aunt, uncle, but we should also declare His glory to the drug dealer, the prostitute, the murderer, the person in the prison, the person in jail. No matter who they are, they need to know about the glory of God. They need to know about how He is perfect 
and how even though he is perfect and that we are deserving hell, he still sent his son Jesus Christ down to save our souls. We need, they need to know how awesome and how great he is. We need to, as, just as the Bible says, lift up the name of Jesus Christ. If we do that to the heathen, we might just see people saved. I personally believe the reason we don't see souls say the way we once did is because the churches today neglect the job of evangelism. We will preach it in the church. We can do it behind a pulpit all the time. But yet, we don't do it out there where most lost folk are. Folks, we've got to go out and go to the highways and the hedges and compel them to come in. I believe the greatest missionaries are sitting in our local churches and that this local community around our local churches is the best mission field. If we don't start there... Where will, how will we go out farther? This is our realm of influence. These are people we know, our friends, neighbors, loved ones, cousins, aunts, uncles, brothers, sisters. We know them personally. They're in our homes every day. And every day God gives us opportunities to tell them about how they need Jesus, how God loves them, how God wants to save them. But we've got to take them opportunities. A church that is not on mission, a church that is not going out, it's a church that is going to eventually start withering. And we see that. You can go up and down the hollers and, and, and see churches that are, are struggling to keep lights on, things like that. And one of the reasons why is they became too involved. We've got to get out involved. We're going out and sharing the gospel. Uh, that's the reason we do things like our food pantry where gospel tracts go out and the word goes out and touches people or the trunk or treat where the, the gospel tracts go out to these children and their household and their parents. And don't think when a child comes home with a bag of candy that mom and dad ain't digging through that candy as well, pulling out a gospel tract and reading what it says. You never know what will happen when that gospel is being read. It's powerful, folks. There's not power in us. There's power in the word. Acts 13.47 says, For so hath the Lord commanded us, saying, I have set thee to be a light of the Gentiles, that thou shouldest be for salvation to the ends of the earth. I want you to think about this. Let's say you found out tomorrow that you have the cure to an incurable disease. We'll use AIDS, for example. You say you have the cure to AIDS, and you can go about and cure every person in the world with it. But you are the one who has possession of it. Folks, we have possession of a cure tonight. We have possession of the cure to sin. We have the possession of the cure to eternal condemnation in hell. We do the church, God's church. But we need to take that cure and share it with people. If you knew you had the cure to cancer, would you hide it in a, in a, in a cabinet somewhere? Of course not. You would go and find every person you can, every oncology center you can, and give that cure out. But so often we know the cure for hell. We know the cure for being lost, being unsaved. But we take that cure and we put it in our back pocket and, and don't want to give it to nobody. Folks, heaven, we're told throughout the Bible as we read through the scripture that heaven is not going to get too full. It ain't going to happen. I wish it would. I wish that was a serious problem. But we know it's not going to happen. There's plenty of room up there. Jesus even said, my father's house are many mansions. Folks, we got to do what the, our primary purpose, and that is tell people about Jesus. Tell them the gospel. Share the gospel. Live the gospel. And I'm, this isn't even part of the message, but I'm going to throw it out there because I see it time and time again. And I've even myself made this mistake all kinds of times in my life. There will be people you encounter that are unsaved, that are undesirable. Which that, what that means is they are, you just don't get along with them very well. They rub you the wrong way. They make you want to pull what little bit of hair I have left out of my head and you just can't tolerate them. However, you're never going to reach them with the gospel if you go in arguing and fighting and fussing with them. And I mean, it's tough. And I'll tell you in a classroom, it is super, super tough. 
Because I know the minute I get hateful, this kid shut me down. They're not going to have a thing. They want to hear a thing i got to say about the Lord. And it's not just true with small children. It's true with adults and everything else. You may have a loved one, a neighbor, a co-worker, someone that you just don't tolerate well. you got to handle them with grace. If you're going to lead them to the Lord, you've got to handle them with grace anyways. I'm not saying let them beat up on you, thump on you, and walk all over you. But I'm saying you're going to have to give them a little more grace than what they're giving you. Because if they're unsaved, you've got something they don't have. You should be more loving than they are. Like I said, I quote here all the time. Jesus said that a sinner will love his enemies, but it takes a Christian to love... Sorry, a sinner will love those that love him, but it takes a Christian to love someone that hates him. That's how we have to handle people sometimes. We really want to see them say, we really want to see them converted and see them spend eternity in heaven and not hell. We're going to have to operate that way. The last thing I want to give you tonight we need to change how we see is we need to change how we see eternity. You see, eternity involves one of two places, heaven or hell. There's no in-between. And we on earth get very finite minds of birth and death, and we a lot of times forget that there is a, all kinds outside of that time period here on earth. Uh, there's a poem that about the dash, about how dash we spend here on earth. It's what we spend here on earth. It's when we make our decision to whether to accept or reject Christ. But however, there is an eternity that goes farther, much farther on than what we spend here in this life. For a Christian, we should be encouraged. Revelation 21.4 describes heaven and it says, God shall wipe away, all, wipe away all tears from their eyes and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall be any more pain, for the former are things past. Now, folks, I don't know about you, but I would love to go to a place that doesn't have any of those things. I, I, I don't like death. I never did like death. I, I know it's when we, should, we are not to, be, uh, to view it the way the world views death. However, it doesn't change the fact that death can absolutely torment us. I don't like sadness, tears, sorrow. No one does. We want to be happy, joyful people. The Bible says to rejoice but yet while we're in the flesh, we are not going to always rejoice. There's going to be bad days. There's going to be sorrow. There's going to be anger. Uh, there's going to be a lot of things. Um, I had a conversation the other day with a kid who was saying something uh, derogatory toward God, and I didn't get really get hated, but I very quickly correct them. And they want to throw at me and say, Mr. Basin, you're a Christian. You can't get upset about this. And I said, yeah, I can. You're in, it's insulting God. Jesus flipped tables when they insulted God. So I'm not going to sin about it, but I will be upset about it. Um, so there's times that we have these emotions in our life, but it does not change it. Someday, those of us that are saved and born again are going to go to a place where there is no sadness, no death, no heartache, no sorrow. And that God's going to give us permanent joy in Him. Folks, we don't always think about that. We think about the here and now. We think about the struggles of this world and say, man, where is God in all these things? And we get all frustrated and tore up. Folks, the Bible says that my hope is in this world. I'll be of men most miserable. My hope is not in this world. My hope is in the eternity to come that one day, after a while, I will be with God. And at that point, all things will be perfect. It's not worth worrying and struggling about the things today when I know what is to come. John 14, 2 says, In my Father's house are many mansions. If we're not so, I would have told you. I go there to prepare a place for you. And 1 Corinthians 2, 9 says, But as it is written, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither hath it entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. Now I want you to think about this. Not only is this place perfect, not only is this place beautiful and this place uh, a place of permanent joy, God has prepared it for us. 
Oh my goodness, the amount of love that I, that I just can't imagine there. The fact that God loved me so much that He not only saved me when I deserved hell, but Jesus prepared this place that I could go and be with Him there. It is a gift for the church, this heaven, this, per, this permanent place that is per, perfection. But we also have the polar opposite there that, that, that is warned about in the book of Revelation for those that reject Jesus Christ. You see, while the new heaven and the new earth and that new Jerusalem is waiting there for the church, we're also told by this great white throne judgment for the lost. And it says, And I saw a great white throne to him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away, and there were found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the book, according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast in the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast in the lake of fire. That we know of basically what we think of as hell. Folks, eternity is eternity. This should do several things. First of all, this should encourage the church that we have heaven waiting for us. Secondly, this should, this should petrify the lost because they got hell waiting for them. And thirdly, for the church, this should really, really put us on fire for God to go about and to spread that gospel message. Because if eternity means forever, we have a huge, huge, huge responsibility for our neighbors, love, and the people that God put us in contact with because their eternity may be up to us sharing the gospel with them. Folks, that should absolutely drive you to, to share Jesus with everyone you speak to. So oftentimes we don't mention him. So oftentimes we, we don't worry about him. We, we worry about Jesus on Sunday and, and, so, and some people Wednesday. It's getting to the point Wednesday nights and most churches are not even as large as they once were. But we need to worry about him seven days a week, 365 a year, 24-7, that he is the chief focus of all that we do is sharing Jesus Christ. Folks, if we change our perspective on these things, we change how we see ourselves, and we're not prideful, but yet we're not beaten down. We know who we are in God. If we change how we see each other, that we are not a burden, but we are an asset. We are, we are critical. We need each other. We change how we see the world. We see them not as a burden, but we see them as a mission field, a, a goal, someone to reach out to. We change how we see our purpose, that we're not just here to fellowship, we're not just here uh, uh, to have a good time and sing songs. We do those things that we're primary purpose is to share the gospel. It all goes back to the gospel. And we, as we said, we need to change how we see eternity, that it is a real thing that is coming. And for some people, it's coming very soon. People die every second, every moment. There's nothing we can do to stop death. But when death comes, it all boils down to what did we do with Jesus Christ? Did we accept Him? Did we reject Him? And when you face that judgment seat of Christ as a Christian, how is He going to view your works? Some people, I believe, ain't going to have very many crowns. Some people aren't going to have any crowns necessarily. Folks, I want to know when I face Christ, I know I'm not perfect. I know I'm, I'm not uh, um, maybe a whole lot to brag about. But I want to know that I've done all that I could to please God. That I was faithful over a few things, that way, and He'll make me a ruler over many. Because that's how good God is.
Folks, if you're here tonight and you've never been saved, you've never been born again, Jesus Christ loves you. He died for you. He wants you to accept Him by faith. Call out to Him and ask Him to save you. Simple prayers. Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I, I ask you, Lord, to, to right now to save me, to come into my heart. Uh, make Jesus Christ the Lord of my life and I will serve you. A simple prayer just like that would be enough to save the most wretched sinner in the world. And for those of us, the church, if you're not walking where you need to be with God, maybe you're, you're got, the devil's got you looking at things all out of perspective. He's got you angry. He's got you upset. He's got you beaten down. Listen, let this be a time that you repent of that. That the Bible says rejoice. We should be happy in the Lord. We should look at the good things in life that God has given us and not allow the devil to distract us and get us beat to death with the negative. So as we sing our song of invitation now on page 385, I want to encourage you, if that's you tonight, you need to pray. You need to ask the Lord to save you or ask the Lord to lift you up and to make you and to have His eyes and see things the way He sees things. If we all stand, we'll sing the first and the third verse on 385. Almost persuaded. Don't be almost persuaded tonight. <laughs>